The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. Now, Katie, I think the big development this morning has been uh, Nadine Dorries finally handing in her notice, uh, sending off the email which has been chosen, which is that she's now got a, a Crown appointment as Chilton Hundreds. So that means she's going to be a by-election there in mid-Bedfordshire. Tell us what we can expect from that. So the earliest will take place is October. Exact date still to be confirmed. Obviously, it's tricky timing for Rishi Sunak in the sense that his team hoped that autumn is this time of rejuvenation, shaking things up through various things, the King's Speech, November, a minor reshuffle, and then also um, party conference, of course, and having uh, what is technically on paper a pretty safe Tory seat majority over 25,000. If they were to lose that, it would suggest quite the opposite and dispel any recovery narrative. I think what's interesting is it definitely feels, speaking to MPs, that is the tricky thing for Rishi Sunak. I think Nadine Doris, because she is so uh, vehemently anti-Rishi Sunak and pro-Boris Johnson, it means the criticisms in her resignation note haven't actually really started much of a conversation with Tory MPs. They more just see it as the end of Nadine Doris. Whereas if it had been another MP who said, Rishi Sunak has no vision, Rishi Sunak has no this, perhaps it would it would lead to more festering instead of just make this, uh, you know, bruising chapter of super loyal Boris figures end. When it comes to the by-election, I think what's interesting is clearly it's going to be difficult for the Tory party. One figure, I know, said they think actually Nadine Doris may have behaved so badly that there's some sympathy for them, but I think that could be a little bit optimistic. So what's more interesting to me is what is happening elsewhere in terms of the battle between the Lib Dems and Labour. Because what you saw in the local elections, which took the Tories by surprise, was how effective the tactical voting was. Um, that was why the Tories did even worse than the party chairman said on television in terms of the number of... Um, of losses was the fact that it seemed as though anti-Tory voting when people were being really organised and whichever candidate was most likely to fare against the Tories. This time around, you are stuck in a stalemate whereby Labour won't stand aside and the Lib Dems won't stand aside and both think that this is their by-election to win. Now, the argument from Labour is we came second at the general election Obviously, we are in contention. The argument from the Liberal Democrats is that in two of the by-elections, such as North Shropshire, they were third at the election, but yet they still won it in a by-election. And they have a track record of overturning huge majorities at by-elections. And there is a ceiling on the Labour vote. Because this is such a safe Tory seat, you have a situation whereby there are some Tory voters who yes, would not vote for the Tories, but are not going to go so far as to vote Labour and the Liberal Democrats in a better place to uh, you know, sweep up those votes. The risk, of course, <laughs> is that you have the vote splitting between Labour and the Liberal Democrats and then the Tories sneak through the middle. So this looks like one of those very rare three-way seats. In- exactly. And that's not before we even get to the independent candidate. There's also an independent candidate suggesting that they have a chance. So yes, a free to maybe four seat. I'm talking of by-elections, uh, Fraser, last month's by-election in Uxbridge was, of course, dominated by the ULES issue. Now, today, uh, sorry, this week, Sadiq Khan has been rolling out the ULES expansion. But there's also been some news today, which uh, the mayor's office has confirmed that it's his uh, previous 2018 plan to impose a zero-emission zone in central London by 2030 has been abandoned. Uh, tell us about what you think of this. 
I think this is quite a significant development. Verbally, Sadiq Khan has been very bullish. This is a guy who released a book called Breathe. He is very much committed to the cleaner air agenda, and he has um, faced down protests from Londoners and even Keir Starmer, the head of the Labour Party, who's asked him to delay with this. He didn't delay, he's pushed it forward, and as of this morning, um, the cameras are now live, searching for and, f- and fining um, the offending vehicles 12.50 a day. But what we've seen behind the scenes are two significant developments. One is that Khan's officials, not Khan himself, have confirmed that he's going to abandon his previous um, talk plan for having a zero emission zone in central London. The idea that ULEZ ultra low was not enough, you'd have a zero emissions. That has now been abandoned, even though it was in his 2018 plan. But also, the, over the weekend, he sort of angrily tweeted that he is, just to be clear, he says, I'm absolutely not going to go with a per mile charging scheme. Now, the idea of per mile charging was also um, in his 2018 plan. It said he would consider it. So these are two, um, if you like, clean air proposals that he is now backing away from whilst doing everything he can politically to say that he's behind um, the ULEZ expansion and that he's not returning. Now, all over Europe, we can see people backing away from the sort of circa 2018-2020 pledges made about various green agendas, um, the, the 2030 withdrawal of petrol and diesel-based cars, etc. It has seemed as if Sadiq Khan was the only laddie who was not returning, but he is. And we see him under increasing pressure to back up his claim that ULEZ has cut pollution by 50%. If you actually, we've been looking at this at the Spectator Data Hub, if you look at the only independent study that's been done, it suggests that ULEZ has so far reduced pollution by just 3% over and above what is happening in every other city in Britain and in Europe, clean air policy or not. He's also struggling to substantiate his figure about 4,000 deaths every year due to, um, or, or links to pollution. That is uh, a freedom of information request found that only one death in the last few years had pollution mentioned as a factor. So he's facing a bit late because he's already gone through with it. He's facing sort of scrutiny now that he's struggling to stand up to, which perhaps explains why his policy now seems to be one of retreat while carrying through. Because he paid for all of these cameras, he got them bolted up over London. It would be an utter humiliation for him to say, OK, Keir Starmer has told me to delay it, therefore I'm going to. But it seems as if he is backing down on whatever he can back down on. And the direction of travel with him too is that of a reversing ferret. There seems to be a lot of briefings around, could the government block this, etc., Katie, you know, take legal action. But it seems that the government really quite like having this as a bit of a live issue ahead of that mayoral election next May and using something to bash Labour with. Yes, I mean, you did have, obviously, the legal action through various Tory-led councils, which was not successful, but there are plans to appeal that decision. So I think that it is a fight they want to have. I think a success in terms of blocking an expansion of the scheme would be something they could add fuel to the fire to say, you know, we're on the side of motorists. But it does lead to, I think, the ongoing debate of the summer recess, having been away for two weeks and coming back, and it still seems to be the same debate, um, (laughs) which is, should the Tories or Labour be, um, you know, scrapping at zero? How much of a climb down should it be? And it feels like both parties are in a bit of a um, pickle over it in terms of some of the internal conversations. I think from the Labour perspective, air pollution 
is something quite different to the net zero focus coming from the leader's office. So while Keir Starmer and his team are very keen to have a very open fight, which I think there are cons to, after the Uxbridge defeat, that is quite different in terms of how figures in those, you know, shadow departments see it to scrapping, you know, their 2030 target um, on the wider net zero, which is earlier than the government-wide one. And the fact that the Tories, in a way... And managed to get themselves also in a place where initially it was Labour fighting one another on, on ULES and green issues. Now, then now we're in a situation where I think Rishi Sunak has left enough space, ministers not knowing what to say on the airwaves about various targets, that there has been questions about whether he is going to cut more things on net zero. You have the housing announcement today, which is effectively scrapping an environment, well, well, modifying an environmental measure which they think are allowed to um, build more homes and they're saying there's funding to offset this so it should please everyone but as you can expect environmental groups being quite critical of this so it can at least look a bit as though um, Rishi Sunak is going cold on some of the net zero parts of it I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is that has allowed things such as the new oil and gas licenses to look as though it's a knee-jerk reaction to the Uxbridge by-election, the fact they narrowly won, wanted to do more in terms of engaging on net zero, when actually it was a long-planned policy. And energy security is seen as a different thing. And it's obviously tricky as soon as you go down that route, um, you know, if you're going to isolate some of your voters, if you look like you're doing lots of things to stop net zero. So I think there's still you know, more miles to go on this. I think changing public opinion is also a factor as a poll out today, suggesting that when you ask all UK voters, uh, do you think you live in London is a good idea? that they think by four to three that it's a bad idea. When asked if they would support or oppose a similar ULES-like surcharge in their area, people are against it by a margin of two to one. So you've now got this, I think this is in the last sort of six to nine months, these environmental policies are going from theoretical to practical. And I think that the Conservatives are sensing this change of, of mood. It's funny, I'm reading Theresa May's memoirs right now, which have just landed today. And um, I hope I'm not giving too much away to say that she's asked, she's, you know, it's all about her legacy, her search, or lack thereof. And she's saying that she wants, um, when she's asked her legacy, she wants to point to two things. The, um, the human trafficking bill, which of course was, you know, a good policy, albeit one designed by the Centre for Social Justice, approved by number 10, handed to her to implement. It wasn't exactly her idea. And the other thing was net zero which she thinks is her her proudest achievement. Now, Net Zero was an idea that she had in the last few weeks of office, and she committed her government, legally and her country, to a target that she had absolutely no idea how she would achieve. And it now seems that, by the way, very few other countries have followed Britain in signing up to making a legally binding pledge to hit Net Zero by 2050. So it seems that what seems to be the future back in Theresa May's days, is changing. And I think what was seen to be the right direction of history, people are now thinking, actually, this now looks like being a little hubristic and an example of politicians signing up to things before really asking, what would it mean for the cost of living issues? What would it mean for the people paying the taxes? And was it politically deliverable? Now, in politics, if you promise something without the faintest idea how you're going to deliver it, that isn't really something to be proud of. And I'm surprised that Theresa May would highlight this as her proudest achievement. Theresa May was also very well known for delivering quite a critical speech of the policing in one of her early days as uh, Home Secretary. And policing is back in the news this week under 
one of May's successors, Suella Braverman, who's told police to go and investigate every single crime. What's behind this story, Katie? So this is something that I wrote about a few weeks ago in a cover piece for The Spectator, the Super Cops cover, and it was looking actually, it began with this policy um, saying, you know, they're going to receive this advice in a few weeks' time to investigate every crime. And that is to investigate whether there is a reasonable lead, which doesn't sound particularly novel as a concept. One might expect the police investigate most crimes. But I think for various reasons, and obviously funding being a huge part of that, there's been claims that austerity means that, you know, they're not the resources to do so. You've had forces such as um, the Metropolitan Police effectively not investing quite a lot of low-level crimes. If you look at stats on bike thefts I think about two percent of stolen bikes have led to um you know actually being found and it means there is a sense that even though general crime statistics you can argue there's quite a good story to be told if you take out fraud caveat for those already getting annoyed at me when they listen to this I think the fact that it also feels as though some crimes have just been decriminalized means that this you know it's not a straight simple story to tell what's interesting is since this advice has now actually been issued you've had warnings from various you know police organizations so you know saying uh Sierra Brabham's interfering with police independence also suggesting this isn't doable with the current spending formula I think it's worth pointing out that this idea isn't uh you know Sierra Brabham just sitting in her office thinking I'm going to tell police to do something they all think is unworkable it comes from a police force I mean Greater Manchester Steve Watson chief constable two years ago received that role and took it out of special measures and he brought in the zero tolerance approach for every theft uh, being investigated and it's had very promising results which makes it uh, while every force is different I think a bit harder to argue that you know there's no possible way of doing this because of under the current system. I mean Fraser it's not an interesting wider story here which is that the Tories were often seen as the party of the police think of the 80s and Mrs Thatcher did a great work in sort of trying to keep them sort of aligned on issues like the minor strike etc. I mean why do so many Tory politicians seem happy and, and willing to go after the police in a way that perhaps they wouldn't 30 years ago? It's a really good question. If the Tories are not seen to be the party of law and order or low taxes or border control, then you do kind of um, wonder why your average voter would, would vote Tory. Uh, it, it was Theresa May, of course, who as Home Secretary decided to confront the police and come up with a rather bizarre strategy where she was saying that they were their stop and searching was uh, in part racist because it was stopping too many young black boys. Now, that gave the Tories lots of... Um, points to sort of posture as progressive champions. But if you have a look at what has happened since, um, the in Katie Supercop's cover, I was, um, was it Manchester, Katie, where they've significantly increased stop and search? Yes. Right. And so you can see that they've rode back from that. Uh, what they've done is they're looking at it a different way. What proportion of stops and searches actually yield a weapon? Now, if it's the case that the the figure is lower for, for, for black people that are stopped than whites, that would suggest some racial profiling. But if it's broadly the same proportion, then there was never any sort of racist intent to point there in the first place, which is, again, I haven't got quite back to that chapter in Theresa May's book. It'd be interesting to see what she thinks of that in retrospect. We look forward to reading your review of Theresa May's book, Fraser. Thank you. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Katie. And thank you very much for listening to Coffee House Shots.